Good morning. Let me add my welcome to you if you are visiting with us today and to all the students who are making their way back for the beginning of a fresh school year. You've caught us in the third week of a series looking at the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah in the book of First and Second Kings, a series we've titled Staying True in Troubled Times. We'll continue that today in 1 Kings 21, but would you bow for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, unless you build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And unless you speak from your word, then I labor and we listen in vain. Would you speak this morning? Convict, confront, comfort, encourage, strengthen by your grace that we might serve you all our days in the name of your Son. Amen. Last week in 1 Kings 19, God told Elijah that he was going to keep his promises by graciously keeping a people. Today we get to look at the life of of a man who was one of those people. We get to peer into a day of Naboth's life. Let me show you how the whole story moves. While it's 30 verses, it breaks down rather simply. Take a look. Verses 1 through 16 tell us the story of a faithful man being killed. And then in 17 through 29, the killer is condemned. In doing so, it makes a simple, singular point that every evil committed will be condemned. That's the singular point of our passage this morning, that every evil committed will be condemned. And as it moves this direction, as it drives this point home for us, it's going to begin to address our kind of innate longing for justice by showing that God does not ignore evil. Well, let's begin. Verses 1 through 16, we're looking at a faithful man that is killed. And you can't miss this man's name. Even if you hadn't heard of him before today, you know his name now because his name in these first 16, 17 verses is mentioned 17 times and 19 times in the chapter, and then never again in the Bible, but there's really a dense concentration here. You know his name. Naboth, in his life, is a picture of the faithful, is a picture of faithfulness. And in his death, he is a picture for the faithful. Our story begins with a real estate transaction that is aborted. You see, Naboth had property that meets the number one criteria, location, location, location. And he was right next to the king's palace, and he had a buyer. The problem is, Naboth refused to sell his land. See, he wasn't into real estate for the money. He wouldn't give it up, even though Ahab basically asked him to name his price. The reason is refreshing. In verse 3, He says he didn't want to displease the Lord who had given that land to his fathers. You see, this was an inheritance that he did not see as his to give. It was given 
to his fathers. And Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the land inheritance was only to be told, sold in times of financial distress. Couldn't sell it on a whim or just to make some easy money. This was a strategy that was labeled in case of emergency only. Now, could Naboth have maybe stretched the truth in his own mind, rationalized it that, yeah, he really was in a pinch and maybe made it seem allowable for him to do it? Because it is potentially possible in the law that you can sell it. He could have. He could have made himself feel all right about it, but he didn't. His commitment to the Lord prevented him from selling the land. His desire was not to displease the Lord. What an example for us today. Faithfulness to the Lord, according to Naboth, cannot be divorced from everyday transactions. It has an impact, your trust in God and your following him, on your everyday transactions. It has an impact on our personal finance and even real estate transactions. According to Naboth, your business deals and how you go about things like selling your home matter to God. And the pursuit of profit cannot eclipse the call of faithfulness, according to Naboth. Well, Ahab is just the opposite. He does not understand Naboth's faithfulness. He, just, he doesn't have a category for it anymore. He's so hardened, so gone by this point. And in verse 6, when he relays the encounter with Naboth, to Jezebel. Do you hear what he says? He, he changes it. When Naboth said, I don't want to displease the Lord by selling it, he says, oh, Naboth won't give me his property. He won't give me the garden. He's totally misinterpreting it because he doesn't have a category for faithfulness to the Lord. Naboth hears him being selfish and refusing to sell a personal asset. And Ahab's misunderstanding is going to end up having serious consequences for both of them. And that leads us to 5 through 16, where Naboth's death becomes a picture of the faithful. Ahab goes home and pouts about not getting the land he wanted. It's really comical, almost, the way he is portrayed. Naboth's refusal not only frustrated Naboth, though, or frustrated Ahab, it enraged his wife Jezebel. In verse 7, she doesn't understand why Ahab isn't using his power as king to get the land. So she's going to show him how to flex a little kingly muscle. Jezebel, by the way, was the one back in chapter 18 who was killing the Lord's prophets. So here is a woman who embodies represents to its climax opposition to God and his people. She now wields this assumed authority to come after faithful Naboth. And the following events then show the spiral of sin. What began as Ahab's covetousness and self-pity grows. It now includes the elders in Naboth's city, deceiving the citizens by setting up a sham religious festival. It includes two townspeople making false accusations against Naboth. It involves the unlawful execution of Naboth, and as you learn later in the story, his sons. It involves an official cover-up. It involves the stealing of his God-given 
land. All this work, all this evil, just so Ahab could grow a few extra figs. They had weighed the life of Naboth and his sons and found it lacking compared to the wants of a pouty leader. Real estate was more valued to them than a real person. Jezebel orchestrated it. Ahab did not prevent it. The elders and leaders, plural, of the city went along with it. The two worthless men carried it out, and no one had the courage to resist. There is no one like Obadiah Obadiah from chapter 18 who risked his life to subvert the plans of an evil king. That kind of man is absent in this story. Naboth was a man of conviction who refused to compromise. But what about these people? There's no resistance. There's no objection hinted at in the text. No conscience. Evil was done. A man was dead. And nobody blinked. Now, most here are not guilty of intricate plots like Ahab and Jezebel. But I wonder how much we resemble the pawns in this plot. How often are we going along with questionable plans without asking questions, without resisting the evil that harms those made in God's image? Are we participating in plans that harm those on the margins? Consider what drives your own economic pursuits or political preferences, especially at a local level, your neighbors? Would you risk being shunned by your peers for the sake of doing what is right? Would you risk your job? Would you remain faithful to the Lord? Naboth did, and it cost him his life. How significant is it when we are complicit in such a thing, if we go along to get along. Well, someone who knows this all too well, at one end of the spectrum, was an Auschwitz survivor. And he wrote, he wrote that we are scarier than anybody like Jezebel or Ahab or, in his case, Hitler. We have the potential to be scarier than these people. Listen to what he says. He says, monsters exist, but they are too few in number to be truly dangerous. More dangerous are the common men, the functionaries that are ready to believe and to act without asking questions. Because of the compliance of ordinary people like you and me, this plan went without a hitch. The efficiency is startling, cold, and matter-of-fact. Naboth is dead, and it's repeated five times in three verses. Ahab has the land. No one is caught. No one is punished. A faithful man, his family, killed in a conspiracy. Evil has apparently won, and God was apparently blind to it. Naboth's death is a picture of the faithful because he embodied the experience of the faithful in troubled times. 
He was more concerned about pleasing the Lord than pleasing the king. It cost him his life. While sin reigns, those committed to the Lord will face opposition. In the U.S., we're beginning to feel this. While there has not been systemic or cultural organized persecution of Christians, our beliefs are becoming less welcome. Uh, Just two years ago, there was a story about a Wheaton College alum who was a presidential appointee being questioned by a now relatively famous politician. And he really went after this presidential appointee to some menial position because of a paper he wrote at Wheaton where he argued for the, that Jesus alone can save sinners, a very fundamental belief to the Christian faith. He went after him and thought that he was actually disqualified to serve his position because of that, tried to shame him publicly. But what about you? What about me? We're not on the stand at the Congress floor. But what would your neighbor say about your beliefs? How might they feel about the Christian position on human dignity or biblical sexuality? Christian beliefs are always at odds with the world. We could come up with a dozen more just like that. But Christian, you need to remember the admonition from the Apostle Paul who wrote that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This has been true since Naboth's day, and it's true in ours. And that's how Naboth is a picture of faithfulness, not wanting to displease the Lord, but a picture for the faithful, and that he shows us what it might look like to follow God in faith. But thankfully, his death is not the end of the story. In 17 through 29, we said that the evil man is now condemned. And in verse 17, God's word comes to Elijah, and it seems to come out of nowhere. It's a really abrupt, shi- abrupt shift in the story. All of a sudden, everything that God, God has not, or Elijah, has not been a character so far. And now he speaks. God knows where Ahab is and what he did, that he has killed and taken possession. He now sends Elijah with a devastating message that Ahab will share the same fate as Naboth, a violent death and a disgraceful exposure of his body after death. It is graphic to hear it. This judgment for Ahab will be fulfilled in the very next chapter. And the author is, uh, is keen to tell us that after Ahab died in his chariot, they brought his chariot back to the local car wash. And as they were rinsing it out, the blood and water mixed was licked up by dogs and prostitutes washed themselves in it, just as the word of the Lord had said. Now, uh, there are some parts of the Bible that are difficult and some that are easy, I want to encourage you, you don't need to know anything about ancient Near Eastern culture to know that that is a really disgraceful way to die. Having dogs lick up your blood or prostitutes washing themselves, that's not a good way to go out. 
That's easy. That, that, that's a softball. That's what I'm trying to say here, okay? <laughs> that's a sorrowful way for a king of God's people to end. And all this for his evil. Even though they thought they were acting under the secrecy of conspiracy, their sin was plainly visible to God because sin is never secret. To pretend otherwise is to fool ourselves at an almost juvenile level. Uh, when I was a kid, I was going to write this part in the abstract, but my wife said, just be straight here. So when I was a kid, I used to wrap myself in my favorite blanket and pretend that I was invisible. So I could walk around my house and sneak up and torture my sister or try to get a cookie off the counter, thinking that nobody could see me. And my parents would laugh and kind of play along for a little bit, just as I do now for my kids when they do similar things. But it's really preposterous to think that I wasn't seen. I was seen. You could see me clear as day. Maybe you could even see me more with a big blanket wrapped around me. But that's what we're doing when we think we are hiding our sin from God. Ahab couldn't hide it. Neither can we. God's righteous word condemns this evil man. And this condemnation leaves us then with both comforting implications as well as sobering implications. It comforts us for this reason. It shows us that God is concerned about the evil of individual injustices. Even if he doesn't prevent them, like in this story, he sees them, he knows them, he hates them, and he opposes them who do them, and he has something to say about them. But do situations like this where God allows the evil raise questions for you? It has for me, and it has for many other people as Many of you may be aware of one of the more popular arguments against the existence of God goes as follows. You say that God is all good, he is all powerful, yet evil happens. Therefore, God must not exist, or at least not that kind of God. But if you're visiting today, or if you're new to church or the Bible, you should know that the Bible actually affirms all three of those premises. God is all good. He is all powerful and evil exists, but it comes to a vastly different conclusion. Uh, probably don't need to state the obvious, but the Bible does not conclude that God does not exist. The Bible affirms this. It says God obviously exists, but in his goodness and power, God sometimes prevents evil and sometimes permits evil, but he will always perceive evil. He always sees it. Not a single instance is overlooked, not a real estate deal in the ninth century BC. And in his goodness, he will address it as he did Ahab's. So Christian, when you suffer 
like Naboth, as a Christian, for doing right, you need to know that they're not senseless acts that are lost in the chaos of an impersonal universe. Each instance is noted. It is recorded. It will be addressed by God with the particular and personal care that seems so absent in the midst of the trial. You are not forgotten or neglected. Your suffering is under God's watchful eye, even if it is not prevented by his powerful arm. But the same word that comforts the suffering also sobers the sinner. This, in some ways, is closer to how the story would have originally been heard. Sure, the author knew probably a few righteous sufferers in exile who needed the comfort of knowing that God would make things right. But more, uh, he was demonstrating the rightness and certainty of God's judgment on evil. For decades, the people of Israel were unfaithful to the Lord. The prophets speak of their faithfulness as whoring after other gods. They sacrificed idols, neglected the Lord who had brought them out of Egypt and into their promised land. Worship was neglected and his word was ignored. Sin no longer seemed like a big deal. God was forgotten and they pursued things that were far more interesting. And what did God do? Nothing at least for a long time. And only after they ignored God's patient and persistent calls to return did the hammer fall. The northern kingdom went into dispersion by the Assyrians in 722, and a century later, the southern kingdom of Judah was taken into exile by the Babylonians. Despite repeated warnings, they would not repent and they had to deal with devastating consequences. And First and Second Kings, then, at least in part, is written to argue how right God was and how good he is to punish people for their sin. Now, on one hand, we all kind of bristle when we hear language like that, when we kind of say, yeah, God is judging people for sin. It doesn't fit very well within our cultural Milieu, however you say that word. But don't you agree that God is good and right to judge evil? I mean, would you rather have it be that Ponzi schemers or white-collar fraudsters or sexual predators or human traffickers, would you rather have them go unchecked, unjudged, acquitted, Approved? Allowed? Doesn't that seem to go against everything that would be right? This innate sense of longing for justice within each of us? I think as Christians, we're thankful that God does not let his evil go unchecked, even if you are not a Christian. Who celebrates evil occurring? This is a point where uh, I personally get frustrated with some of today's characters about God. 
On one hand, as we mentioned before, people complain about the evil that is in the world, and then they ignore the Bible to make a faulty philosophical argument against his existence. God is dead. At the same time, or on the other hand, they may say that God is love, he's all-accepting, and he would never judge anyone. And then they look at biblical accounts of judgment, like ours today, where people's bodies are being eaten by dogs and birds. And they complain that God is capricious, angry, and vindictive, egomaniac. Well, which is it? In my view, you can choose one of those positions, but not both. Either you have a problem with evil existing in the world, or you have a problem with God condemning evil in the world. I mean, we are even expecting now politicians and corporate leaders to condemn evil. Why would you not expect God to condemn evil? I personally am thankful for God's righteous justice that actively and appropriately addresses evil. Aren't you? But this is then exactly why God's judgment of evil is sobering. It's sobering because we know our own deeds. And we know that all our evil deeds are observed, even the ones that we think are secret, like Ahab did. Our secret sins are the creeping insects hiding under the rock of our respectability. And I wonder what yours might be. I know mine. Is yours maybe the disingenuous way you described a colleague to make them look not quite as good? But don't worry, nobody knows. The sharp words you spoke to your spouse, nobody knows. Your intense and prolonged hatred for the person that wronged you, nobody knows. How about the person you assaulted? the extra or hidden drinks, that night or that weekend, the relationship that nobody else can know about, the money that wasn't yours to take. No one knows. But God knows. Whatever your secret sin, it is not hidden from God or his word. He sees and his word condemns each of these acts. The Bible even later puts it this way. It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This word certainly sobered Ahab. One of the best scenes for Ahab in the whole Bible. He goes from not eating at the beginning when Naboth wouldn't sell to now not eating because of humble repentance in verse 27. And did you notice here that in the same way that Ahab's evil caught God's attention, and he, now his humble repentance catches God's attention. In the same way that he condemned Ahab's actions to Elijah in verse 17, 
he actually now commends his humble posture in verse 29. And if one who has sold himself to evil like Ahab can turn to God, then so can you. It's plain then at this point, God's word has condemned an evil man. And Elijah has made this pronouncement to him. But there's an interesting development in this pronouncement. Ahab, sorry, Elijah relates, he connects Ahab's guilt to his gods. Look at the two explanations for Ahab's condemnation. In verse 19, when God speaks to Elijah, he says, Ahab's coming death is because he had killed and taken possession. But it develops in verse 22. Here, Elijah doesn't even mention the scene with Naboth. Instead, we read that Ahab's line is going to end because he both practiced and promoted idolatry. We're finding that actions are related to allegiance. That is to say, who you worship will impact inevitably how you live. Because Ahab followed other gods, he had no regard for a person who refused his desires. Yahweh and his followers have regard for the lives of others. But Ahab's commitment to Baal apparently did not require this. Those who love the Lord love their neighbor. Ahab killed his neighbor. And this passage says it was at least in part because of the God he followed. Well, where have we come? Naboth's story is the story of an evil man condemned because a faithful man was killed. And it points us to the gospel in an ironic way. It reverses it. Well, in Naboth's story, an evil man was condemned because a faithful man was killed. Now, it says that those who do evil can be excused, not condemned, because a faithful man was killed. That's the gospel. Jesus himself was the faithful man par excellence. No one surpasses him in commitment to his father, seeking his pleasure alone. And like the faithful Naboth, Jesus was also accused by false witnesses and killed in a rigged trial. Jewish leadership conspired with the Romans. They persuaded the crowd so that no one resisted. And at the end of the day, a faithful man was dead. The death of Jesus, however, in contrast to Naboth's, affects a different result. You see, Jesus, in his death, stood condemned in our place and absorbed the wrath of God. So his death doesn't provoke the wrath of God. Instead, the blood of Jesus turns away the wrath of God from all who have believed in him. Jesus, in that sense, becomes both the killed and the condemned in our place. But like Naboth's, this story doesn't end with the death of a faithful man. Jesus was raised three days later. He was vindicated, having suffered innocently, the righteous for the unrighteous, and now seated at God's right hand, he is uniquely qualified to judge oppression and evil. Evil and oppression cannot and will not be ultimately ignored or forgotten. The blood of the righteous cries out for justice. 
And we are assured that one day, this risen Jesus, called faithful and true, will come back to avenge the blood of his saints. He will have something to say. And the entire biblical narrative draws to a close, celebrating our hope of this ultimate justice, this rightness that's coming back to a broken world. Listen as I read Revelation 19, 1 through 3. At the close of the Bible, goes out singing God's praise. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we can sing Hallelujah because every evil committed will be condemned. All will be made right by his son who was both killed and condemned. Join me in prayer. Our God in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, killed and condemned for sinners, risen again and reigning, who will set all things right. He is our hope. His judgments and righteousness are joy. Sustain us in this trial, this trial of life, putting our hope in you and in your work on that great day. Pray in his name. Amen.